All right, we're ready to begin. Uh, we are on session five of our discussion of the Holy Family, and today we're going to tackle two sections. That's why this is called session 5A, Song of Songs. Session 5B is going to be Holy Matrimony. You might recall that in January we had a snow day. That's why I have to do two in one today. That was a long time ago, but we had a real snowpocalypse back then, and so I have to mash two of them together today. We're going to cover some, uh, some uh, romantic topics today, Song of Songs and Holy Matrimony. So we've got, we got to get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we begin with Song of Songs. Get my little remote control thing going here. Song of Songs are also known as Song of Solomon and sometimes referred to as Canticle of Canticles, if you've ever heard that one. Uh, In early Christian moral theology, this is the third of three wisdom books representing a progression in the spiritual life. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, Canticle of Canticles being the third represents the pinnacle of a spiritual progression, spiritual development, and spiritual growth. Um, the, the general idea is that the book of Proverbs, the first of the uh, classical wisdom books, rec- represents what has been called by some the practical life. In other words, you've got to get your moral act together And if you'd like to know how to do that, read the book of Proverbs, where you'll learn to appreciate wisdom. You'll learn that it's probably not a great thing to cheat people. And probably if you lie, you'll benefit in the short term and suffer in the long term. If you uh, pursue nearly sensual pleasure, you will enjoy something uh, in the current moment But soon afterwards, there'll be a price to pay. And if you want to be a wise person, you've got to read the book of Proverbs to get your practical life together. But once you've gotten uh, the noise of concupiscence relatively hushed, what are you supposed to do now? Well, you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, in which we find uh, the writer often attributed to King Solomon contemplating creation. And you read that book and you realize he's contemplating everything a person could possibly acquire, everything they could possibly uh, experience in this life, creation. And in the end, he finds within it vanity of vanities and a chasing after the wind and like a dog chasing after your tail. Uh, Our dog chases after his tail. Once he finds it, Now what? (laughs) He lets go of it so that he can chase it again. Well, you know, if if that's how you want to live your life, okay. But a lot of people do that. Find something to chase. When they catch it, let it go. 
and then chase it again. And that'll get you through the end of your life. Yeah. But the better way to do it is to recognize in these created things something of a love letter from God. You don't marry the love letter. You read the love letter. You cherish it and you set it aside and you pursue the lover. Aha! Song of Songs, the contemplation of God. It's very hard to read the love letter when you're constantly uh, chasing after all of your, your pleasures. Book of Proverbs says, hush that for a while, you'll be able to read the letter. Once you read the letter, you'll set the letter aside and you'll pursue the sender of the letter. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, the contemplation of God. You don't believe me, do you? Well, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, he said that the early Christian moral theologians uh, pointed to a, a progression in the spiritual life. Don't believe me? Well, here, origin, third century. Thus, he taught first in Proverbs the subject of morals, setting regulations for life together as was fitting in concise and brief maxims. And he included the second subject, which is called the natural discipline in Ecclesiastes, in which he discusses many natural things. And by distinguishing them as empty and vain from what is useful and necessary, he warns that vanity must be abandoned and what is useful and right must be pursued. He also handed down the subject of contemplation in the book which we have in hand, that is, Song of Songs, in which he urges upon the soul the love of the heavenly and the divine under the figure of the bride and the bridegroom, teaching us that we must obtain fellowship with God by the paths of loving affection and of love. Now we're talking. So, um, you, you see, I wasn't lying. The church fathers, beginning with Origen, did recognize a progression here. Um, and so we, we continue with our study of the pinnacle of wisdom in the context of the family, the holy family. Song of Songs, on its surface, uh, is a story of the romance between two lovers that have been betrothed to one another. And perhaps you know that some traditions have withheld this book from the youth because it could very easily be misunderstood. And before there was uh, a naughty website, there was the Song of Songs. <laughs> wow, that's, not, that's terrible. I didn't really mean that. I, what I mean is... You could easily misunderstand the Song of Songs, or I should say misuse the Song of Songs, and go back to the book of Proverbs, and actually, before the book of Proverbs, search for sensuality in the streets at night like a lost dummy, a lamb led to the slaughter. That is not what the Song of Songs is about. And so, it is a sensual and decadent book, in a sense, but here is a central element of the mature and fully formed holy family. It's in there. The love and longing of each spouse for the other. And when we hear uh, something today for mature audiences, generally what I take that to mean is for immature audiences. Okay? When a video game says mature on it, it means immature. It means a person who thinks this is really something. When I slash the beast's head off, there's blood and guts everywhere. That's for mature people. No, it isn't. That's for immature people only. For mature audiences only, those who are truly, deeply embedded in sensuality. 
That's not maturity. That's immaturity in the spiritual mindset here. But mature audiences would read this book of Song of Songs with their mouth wide open and their heart pumping fast because they see what this is really about. (gasps) It's shocking. (laughs) Song of Songs, the pinnacle of, uh, of wisdom. And it's interesting to find that in this mystical sensuality, this is not Gnosticism where we leave behind all of the bodily experiences In fact, we see in this book five senses fully used. Chapter 2, verse 3. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Chapter 2, verse 6. His left hand is under my head. His right hand doth embrace me. Touch. Oh, the heart's starting to beat faster. (laughs) Verse 8 of the same chapter. The voice of my beloved, the sound. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Okay, we're going to get through all the five senses, but I want you to catch in the midst of what we're talking about here. The book of Ecclesiastes, the love letter is being laid behind. The love letter is the taste, the embrace, the voice, the touch, the smell. But it's not so much the touch, the smell, the taste. You don't pursue all those things. You leave the love letter behind and you search for the lover. The mystical sensuality, chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? The smells are filling the nostrils. And finally, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, thou art fair. The vision. And this is a little odd. You have to go back a few thousand years. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Not mine. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. And I I imagine if you've ever seen, uh, we just watched some show the other night where they show a flock of buffalo, flock of buffalo, herd of buffalo. And you notice how if you dull your eyes a little bit, it's this swarming, waving, uh, washing a flock, but to them who are they who are agricultural, a flock of goats is wealth and promise and future and stability, but it's flowing over the hillside like her hair. <laughs> uh, thy teeth are like a flock of sheep, okay, that are even shorn. Once again, prosperity and fullness and life and hope, which came up from the washing, glistening white. Whereof everyone bears twins. Get it? You don't have any missing teeth? (laughs) And none is barren among them. So every one of your sheep has a twin, which means you don't have a big hole right in the front of (laughs) you. So he's looking at this lady, and she's looking at him, and they're thinking, wow. But the church church reads this book, and they they see a little bit more than just the, uh, the romance, the sensual nature of this. This is a progression from Proverbs to Ecclesiastes, from Ecclesiastes to Song of Songs. So most, most church fathers recognize Song of Songs as an allegorical picture and a prophecy about the template for all marriage. What St. Paul says, Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. You don't believe me? All right. <laughs> Theodoret. He writes, Let us therefore understand the church as the bride, and Christ as the bridegroom, 
And as the young girls attending the bride, souls that are pious and youthful, who have not yet attained the virtue of the bride and been accorded perfection, hence they're attending on the bride but not being called brides. Here we have the church is the bride, Christ is the bridegroom, and a whole host of bridesmaids around the bride. It's not yet their day, it's the church's day, and the others are hoping for their own day. Uh, Christ the bridegroom, the church as the bride. In a sense, the Old Testament as an engagement. They've been engaged for a long time. The New Testament, a betrothal and a marriage. The bridegroom cometh. The kingdom of God is nigh. The king is here. We don't mourn while the groom is here because the groom is present. Um, An eternal marital bliss, you can imagine, in heaven. As Jesus speaks about the about heaven as like being invited to a marriage banquet, a big, long party that just goes on and on because the marriage is finally uh, consummated and everyone's full of joy. When we're speaking about the Holy Family now, Song of Songs, why did I include this in the discussion of Holy Family? Because at the center of the Holy Family is a husband and a bride. And at the center of the husband and the bride is a relationship between them. Uh, Even a broken family, you know what ought to have been there, and so the longing is there still. Consider the incomplete families so far in the Old Testament, the family in Eden. Ooh, it left something to be desired. The patriarchs, we went through all the patriarchs, and it left a lot to be desired. The kings... And we only went through Saul, David, and Solomon, and already we were in a pretzel of a problem. But nevertheless, there was something right there, too. And so when we look at Song of Songs, yes, it's a picture of, on, the, on its surface, Solomon and perhaps the Pharaoh's daughter, a story like that. But even then, it doesn't really make sense because it's idealized. In other words, there is no mention in Song of Songs of 699 other wives and 300 concubines waiting at home, all of which Solomon loved equally, which means a little bit. <laughs> okay, this, this, is, this is about something bigger than Solomon and his uh, 699th wife. Uh, this is about something bigger than that. This is an ideal picture of this relationship. It's a relationship, if you read the books, eight chapters... And uh, you can bring your fan with you while you read it to fan yourself. (laughs) It's an ideal picture of freedom, trust, openness, infatuation, fascination, daydream, and generally unbounded desire. Even the kind that makes your heart race. That's the nature of this book. And when the church fathers read it, they say, that's Christ and the church. This isn't Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter. When St. Paul speaks about uh, the groom is as Christ and the wife is as the church, he doesn't mean, except for all the romantic stuff. No, no, I'm talking about, like, you know, something else. No, it's that too. The infatuation, the trust, the openness, the vulnerability of that relationship uh, is, is our own little marriages are icons of the big marriage, the real one, Christ and his church. For the Holy Family, if Christ is the groom and the church is the bride, can we say that the two have become one? 
Yes. Interesting. Can we say that they're in love? I hope so. At least the groom's in love with the bride. Is the bride in love with the groom? Pretty much. (laughs) She's easily distracted. I don't mean anything about brides. I'm talking about the church, obviously. Um, Can we say that they're crazy about each other? Sure. Or that they look forward to spending time together? I hope so. Even being alone together? Absolutely. Is it true that the greatest wisdom, the highest prayer, the pinnacle of wisdom is like a budding romance? Yes. Isn't that exciting? Because oftentimes when we think about wisdom, we think about the university. We think, oh boy, Professor so-and-so and and his uh, 900-page thesis. The... uh, the, the pinnacle of wisdom is not necessarily the accumulation of a degree or having read a thousand books and being right on the cutting edge of, of academia. The pinnacle of wisdom is having left behind your concupiscence and your sin, having left behind all that bondage, having read the letter from God in this creation around us and having pursued the one who sent the letter And having met him. That's the pinnacle of wisdom. And that's at the heart of the holy family. Don't believe me? Well, I'm just kidding. I I hope you believe me now. But uh, that's 5A, Song of Songs. If you wanted to linger there, I'm sorry. But the book is in the Bible. And you can go read it if you like. But we have to move to holy matrimony quite logically. And we talk about this as section... 5B. Any, any comments or questions about Song of Songs uh, before we move on? Yes, sir. Um, I just, uh, if, if the bride is the church, and that's certainly true, doesn't that mean that in a sense all of creation that is part of Christ's body is feminine in the response to Christ? He is the lover, and even if you are a biological male, <coughs> one is being moved by Christ, in a sense you're part of the bride of Christ. The church is a part of the bride of Christ, but this can easily be mistaken to mean that all Christians are therefore to be feminine and womanly, which is actually not correct, because when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that's a message for women and men. And that's not a, oh, someone else will carry it for me. No, no, it's you carry it. And you say, uh, well, you know, what we really need to be is receptive, Except for that he says, go into the world and make disciples, which is very proactive. You don't just sit at home and receive. And that message is not for men alone. That message is for women. So, in a sense, yes, there's a feminine nature to, to the church, but not a feminine nature in the sense that, that, uh, that all feminine things must be taken on by all church members and all masculine things must be but set if, aside. But if the church is feminine and he calls her to do all those things, that they need that our idea, our cultural idea of feminine is wrong. Well, that could be, I suppose, yeah. Um, but I will say onward Christian soldiers is, you know, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that the, 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 the image of the faithful Christian is not entirely masculine or feminine, really. It's a human thing. It's a fully human response to our creation and the essence of our being, which to leave one part aside is actually kind of missing the point. Yeah. And to say, uh, <laughs> to say uh, I'll, I'll only sit at home and wait for the Lord to, to tell me uh, what I'm supposed to do next. It, 
Sometimes the Lord gives you a choice and says, I trust you. You decide. You go out into this world that I've created and trust me. Gulp. Okay, well, uh, that's not just a, a, a message for men. You know, that's a message for women as well. But, any, but nevertheless, in holy matrimony, we're in a, in a microcosm really imaging a relationship between Christ, Christ and the church and really imaging uh, the familiar relationship of the Trinity, <clears throat> which is one of both uh, submission and love at the same time. Christ submits to the will of the Father. My food is to the, do the will of the Father. And the Father doesn't say, ha-ha, I've got you right where I want you. He didn't say that. He only asks him to do things that are right, true, beautiful, and redemptive. And so when he goes to the cross, it's not out of vindictive nature. It's because we've got a much bigger thing to do, which is save everyone in love. Oof. Anyway, we could stop there, but we have to go. So <laughs> we can talk about all this uh, later if you like. The Holy Fatrimony. Oh, boy. The Holy Family Christian Matrimony. I've got a picture here of the wedding of Cana. Uh, in Christ, we're invited to participate in the Holy Family, not via negativa. You see in the Old Testament, we've been watching how uh, in Eden, it's like Eden, is, that relationship is missing something. In the patriarchs, it's like it's there. You can kind of see it, but it's missing something. In the kings, it's like, ah, there's something right there, but there's something wrong there, too. And so you learn sort of through the negative way what marriage is really coming here between Christ and his church. But in Christ, we're invited to participate in the Holy Family, not stand by and watch what's wrong with it and, and imagine something better. No, you're asked to participate in it, to join in actuality and to help us understand Jesus has something to say about marriage. He begins his, merit, his, his ministry at Cana. He begins his miracles at a wedding. And he portrays heaven as a marriage banquet to which you are invited and to which you would be a fool to give an excuse of why you have got something else to do. The uh, book of Revelation uh, reads a lot like a marriage banquet scene, a consummation it also, uh, if, you, if you look at the ordination uh, liturgy we're about to see here in a little while, a man giving his life to Christ for the ministry, do you, Joshua Kimbrell, take this church to be your bride? <laughs> the answer is, I do. <laughs> but it's very much like a wedding. There's a wedding, there's a wedding, there's a wedding. Um, Jesus has got a lot to say about this, and he's, he's not saying that... Uh, uh, God is like a wedding. He's saying a wedding is like God. Jesus, right, er, Jesus writes, Jesus says, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. If you've ever read uh, John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying that he and his church may be one, that they may be no longer twain, but one flesh together, just as he and the Father are one, that the church would be one with each other and one with him. 
There's a lot of marital conversation going on there. And St. Paul says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Same thing. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. See how he's going back and forth between marriage and Christ and the church? For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but oops, I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Sometimes people turn to this chapter, chapter 5 of Ephesians, and forget that there was four chapters of Ephesians that came right before that. And if you really want to understand what Jesus is saying, when he, or what St. Paul is saying about marriage, you should probably read the chapters preceding chapter 5, because people love to read that verse about wives submitting to your husbands. And they say, see, it's right here. It's this uh, ancient Near East uh, patriarchal, uh, what would the word be? Uh, Terribleness? No, there's a better word. I can't think of it. Oppression. There you go. It's oppression. The man is oppressing the wife, and the best thing to do is to have a prenuptial agreement where it's 50-50 right down the middle, and each of us get exactly the same amount, because if we split, I'll tell you what, buddy, you're not going to get... We're kind of missing the gist of this here. Uh, St. Paul speaks about husbands and wives, and then about the church, and then about both, and then you're not really quite sure... At which point he's talking about which, and it's not because he's such a poor writer. It's because he's saying it's like the same thing. Um, Earlier in the letter, he speaks about the church. And think about this. This is chapter 4. Chapter 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Difference. But you just said there was one, 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 one. Yeah? Keep listening. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, singular unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that all these several callings will in the end actually be one thing. Then he talks about marriage, saying each of you has a different role and different calling, but it's actually in the context of oneness. So, okay. I won't even go to the wives submit to your husband's thing, but... At least you kind of get the picture. The context is not uh, men get out there and uh, go to the shop and buy yourself a bull whip. And every night you go home, you go whoosh like that. And you say, fall in line. That's not even close. It's not even in the same ballpark as to what we're talking about here. And it wouldn't work anyway, right? <laughs> so you got a bull. It's just like, uh, uh, like uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. The guy's got knives and he's got a gun, so she'll just take you out anyway. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, But it's one truth within another. The discussion about separate roles 
and union of being does not begin with a discussion about marriage. It fits within the discussion of the nature of the church, which falls within the discussion of the nature of the Trinity, different roles, different persons, one being, one essence, one substance, one family, whose image and likeness into which we are made, the pinnacle of which is kind of like Song of Songs, kind of like a romance. If I was to give it a picture, I would say it's kind of like two people dropping everything behind because they're in love with one another. It's kind of like that. This is what's being said. When we talk about the Holy Family, that's an important part of the relationship of the entire family. The husband is as Christ, the wife is as the church. There are differences in gifts, but the same spirit, St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Therefore, holy matrimony is a metaphor for Christ and the church, and it's meant to open up to us a righteous setting for exclusivity, focus, devotion, fruitfulness, diversity, faith, hope, love, and freedom, trust, openness, and even infatuation, fascination, daydream, and generally unbounded love or desire, even the kind that makes your heart race. That's the Song of Songs and Holy Matrimony together being at the center of our discussion of Holy Family. Now next week we're going to talk about the Holy Family proper, shall we say, St. Mary, St. Joseph, and Christ. We've been sort of building up and building towards this perfect little family picture. Um, And so uh, we'll get to that next week. But for now, marriage is meant to be the setting for full Christian maturity, not for mature audiences where everybody is actually a child in their mind. At its best, holy matrimony is the ideal final stage of spiritual maturity. It is the workshop for understanding and participating in divine love, just like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. You realize that in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has tried to get himself wives. He says, I got me wives. And there was something in it that wasn't, didn't quite do it, you know. A thousand wives. Uh, One just wasn't quite enough. 700, 300 concubines. It's something more than that. And so uh, when we're we're speaking of this progression and really the depth of the Holy Family, we include Song of Songs and Holy Matrimony in our discussion. We have a little bit of time for anybody, uh, something they want to say or, or discussion, questions, comments. can't ask a question about Song of Songs because it's too juicy. Going once. Going twice. Sold. All right, next week we're on to uh, the Holy Family uh, proper. And thank you all very much.